Welcome to the Medicine and Machine Learning Podcast, brought to you by the students of the University of Minnesota Medical School. I'm your host, David Wu, and in today's episode, I will be interviewing Dr. Ian Pan, a Kaggle Grandmaster, a soon-to-be radiologist resident at Brigham and Women's Hospital, and a rising star in the medicine and AI field. Ian is a very talented coder who has won numerous Kaggle competitions, which are international data science competitions that are both very competitive and prestigious. Ian is fresh out of medical school and currently wrapping up his intern year at University Hospital in Cleveland. I don't really know how Ian finds the time to be both an international Kaggle grandmaster and medical student slash resident, but that just goes to show you how talented he is. In this episode, we talk about his path to medicine and AI, as well as the various strategies he's used to become number one in this burgeoning new field. Ian also gives some great advice on how to get started, and we close with some of his soapbox diatribes against poor practices in ML today. This interview was a lot of fun, and if you are curious about Kaggle competitions or how to be the best at them, then this interview is for you. Thank you. Hey everyone, my guest today is Ian Pan, who is a first-year medicine intern at University Hospitals in Cleveland and will soon be starting his radiology residency at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Um, Ian is a Kaggle Grandmaster and a rising star in the field of medicine and AI. So hello, Ian. Uh, I was wondering if you could tell us about your path and how you got involved in the intersection of healthcare, machine learning, and data science. Yeah, sure. Thanks so much for having me on this podcast. So I guess the medicine for me preceded all of the AI and data science stuff and that when I was in high school, I was pretty sure that I wanted to be a doctor. Or at least mm -hmm. my parents convinced me that I was pretty sure I wanted to be a doctor. Mm -hmm. So I applied to a lot of like combined programs and those were really my priorities when I was applying to college. And I was fortunate and lucky enough to be accepted to the PLME program at Brown University. Mm -hmm. And so I went to Brown for undergrad What's the PLME in program? the beginning. It's a program in liberal medical education. So it's wow. an eight-year combined like BSMD program. You do four years of undergrad and then you just do four years of medical school. And you can take time off in between um, med school and undergrad. A lot of my classmates did that, but I just went straight through into med school. Mm-hmm. And so when I started undergrad, I was pretty sure I wanted to be like a neuroscience major because I was really interested on like the brain. Um, but you know, I took like a few classes my first and second semester in like neuroscience, and neurobio. It was cool, but I don't know, there was just too much like reading and like listening to people talk. Uh -huh. And so... <laughs> I decided to take a few math classes because I missed doing like problems and using my brain to like work through problem sets and sort of like mm -hmm. the analytical thinking. So I took a few applied math classes and thought they were pretty fun. They were pretty tough, but um, I really enjoyed them. And there was this major at Brown called Applied Math Biology, which was basically you can take a number of classes in both departments and create a major out of it. So mm -hmm. I decided to go with that. And, you know, I was realizing that there was a big role for like application of statistics, and data science and stuff like that in medicine and bio, because there's been this like explosion of data in healthcare mm -hmm. with electronic medical records, next generation sequencing, whole genome sequencing, et cetera, et cetera. And also more and more large databases from my like clinical and epidemiological studies. So there was this wealth of data out there and it seemed like the new trend was to use mathematical techniques and mm -hmm. some stats and machine learning to try and turn all of this data into something useful, whether it be like risk prediction models for certain diseases or like trying to figure out what treatments are going to work best in what particular individuals, like really narrowing into this whole idea of personalized medicine. 
And so that's sort of what prompted me to really like go after this intersection of data science and medicine and really to try and hone my technical skills because I wanted to be really good at both. Um, mm. And that way, having a good understanding of both fields would put me in the best position to really try and leverage all of the new technologies out there to try and apply machine learning to medicine. Mm. And so, you know, for the next several years of undergrad, I just sort of followed along this path. I worked on a few projects um, in public health and epidemiology, et cetera. You know, it was cool, but it was getting to the point where it felt like you were just doing the work to do it. Like it, you would come up with some model or you would, you know, prepare some analysis. And then that was sort of the end of it. It never actually got used and it was never actually applied in the real world. And so, you know, I lost some of my enthusiasm for it. Um, but then it was, I think during like my second year, like latter half of my first year of medical school that I kept searching for, you know, somewhere, some way for me to continue applying what I had learned because I didn't want it to go to waste. Mm -hmm. And there was this imaging lab in the radiology department um, called the 3D lab. And they were sort of playing around with the idea of applying machine learning to images specifically. And this was sort of around the time where like convolutional neural networks were becoming, and by the way, that's like the mainstay of computer vision and like deep learning nowadays mm -hmm. and AI is like these convolutional neural networks that can learn essentially how to interpret patterns and images and predictions mm -hmm. and things. And so, this is around the time that they were becoming more accessible to people who had like some programming background, but maybe not so much to the point where they were like, you know, working full time at Google or Facebook and like sort of doing things from scratch. And also this allowed a lot of people in other domains to start using these techniques to their own, like for their own application. So, this is around the time when people were starting to do it for radiology. And so I thought mm -hmm. I'd just jump on the bandwagon. And it was pretty cool. Um, gave me an opportunity to learn something new. And it was also that year that the big radiology society, which is called RSNA, mm -hmm. um, they hosted a competition on their own. It was for bone age prediction. And mm -hmm. essentially what that is, is sometimes if you're worried that a patient, like a pediatric patient is not developing properly, like they might have some sort of like underlying endocrine disorder that's causing them to not develop appropriately in terms of like maturing, um, they'll get an x-ray of the hand and then they'll look at this x-ray and then try and see if the bone formation in the hand is essentially at an appropriate stage for their age. And they use this to determine if there may be some sort of, you know, either like endocrine disorder that's causing you to mature too quickly or not mature enough. And so this is just one step in that entire workup. But it's a very painstaking process because basically you look through this book of hand x-rays and then you try and compare the hand x-ray that you have in front of you to one of these x-rays in the book and then you're like okay this looks like a 12 year old hand so oh, man. the bone age is 12 years old so it's pretty wow. tedious uh i don't think anyone really likes to do it and it's a very yeah. automatable task if you think about it because it's just pattern recognition you look for mm -hmm. a pattern of bones in the hand and then that pattern corresponds to an age. So it's something that a machine could very easily learn how to do. Mm. So anyways, there was this competition that they hosted and I participated. And at that time, I wasn't very good at what I was doing, but I figured that what better way to learn than to do it in the setting of a competition where there's some yeah. like incentives that drive you, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I worked on it for, I think like two months, two or three months. 
And magically, I was able to get second place in that competition. Wow. Which was really cool. And oh, my goodness. Wow. Yeah. So so I was really happy about that because first it was like, hey, like, maybe you're actually kind of good at this. And mm-hmm. second, it was it, it sort of let me interact with some of the other people who were also doing the same kind of like radiology AI research. I was able to go to the conference and present and meet people. And so it sort of got me started on this whole journey. It's sort of kind of just getting lucky and doing well in this competition sort of set me up for everything else that was to come. Mm. Um, And so, you know, I continued to work on my research. um, And just for reference, this is like 2016, 2017 that you won or 2017 yeah 2017 yeah so 2017 um i was around my second year of medical school and then you know continuing to do research just various things so the thing about like ai and radiology is it's kind of boring once (laughs) you have done like a number of projects because Mm -hmm. everyone's kind of doing the same thing it's like i have a hammer and then everything's a nail. I can mm, use my yeah, like that's, neural that's network to predict anything as that's long as a I good point. the data for it. That's a good point. So, yeah. so that's exactly what I was doing because it was an easy way to turn out academic work. Yeah. You collect some data, you train a model, and then boom, that's an abstract. You collect data <laughs> for another problem, another model, another abstract. So that's yeah. essentially what I was doing. Um and then the following You're year, hammering it out, literally, they, literally. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, I was able to take advantage of sort of all the hype that was building around it at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was really like, you know, a combination of like just good timing mm-hmm. um, as well as me having like the appropriate skill set to take advantage of all the hype surrounding AI and radiology. Mm-hmm. Um, so I consider myself very lucky that I was, I sort of came in at the right time with the right skills. Because mm-hmm. um, that's like, honestly, what determines a lot uh, of success for people is just having, like being in the right place at the right time. Not to say that you don't have to work hard and develop your talents and intuition for all these things, but a lot of it just has to do with like being in the right place at the right time with the right skills. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the next year they hosted another competition. It's like an annual thing now, which is really fun for me. Yeah. Um, but this time they hosted it on Kaggle. So mm-hmm. before they hosted it like on their own, so it's pretty small, uh, like maybe like a, a few hundred submissions, like less than a hundred teams in the end. Then they hosted it on Kaggle the following year was the pneumonia detection challenge. Yeah, in and 2018, like, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, that was sort of intimidating for me because I had made a Kaggle account like in undergrad. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, like, I don't know if I'm that good at this stuff. And I was like nervous to participate. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of stupid, like looking back, like you shouldn't be nervous to participate because you think you're going to be bad. Like yeah. you should just participate to get the experience and like mm-hmm. learn from all of it. But then I, I decided like, hey, like I'm just going to try participating in this competition because I did it in the last time and I was able to learn a lot. And so, you know, who cares if I want to lose? And plus, like Kaggle is sort of like the premier platform for data science competitions. So if I were to do well, it's like, hey, last year was in a fluke. And, um, you know, you can actually compete with data scientists, people who do this full time. Mm. Um, and so I teamed up with one of my friends who I made recently, just after the aftermath of like the bonus competition, his name's Alex. He's a radiologist in Canada who mm-hmm. also does like deep learning stuff. And so we decided to tackle this competition together and put in a lot of hours into that, um, running a ton of experiments. And, How'd you, you know, me? I was also, um, so he also participated in the Bone Age Challenge. He was there at the conference when I went to present. And we just stayed in touch afterwards, mainly through like Slack. 
mm-hmm. since we shared a lot of like mutual interest and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then um, when the competition came rolling around, you know, we thought it'd be a good partnership for us to team up for it and see what we could do together. And, so, and, then, and then you guys won. I saw you guys are first place out of this for our listeners. You guys got first place out of 1499 submissions. Yeah. So congratulations. So That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. There are a ton of teams that participated. Um, we were pretty surprised that we won first place because like, I don't, I don't know, the competition was like pretty stiff too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we we just really had like I think some good insights into the data and um at the time I didn't really have like a great pipeline for experimenting with different models and things like that and so I spent a lot of time just trying to come up with a way for where I could like rapidly iterate on different experiments and so at the end of the competition, I just had like a ton of code that honestly I could have organized a bit better and it probably would have saved me a lot of time going in. But when you're just starting an endeavor like this, it's tough to really know what to expect and like mm-hmm. how to best prepare yourself for it. Um, but we were very fortunate to win first place. And I think that also gave us confidence that, you know, we could compete with like the top data scientists yeah in the world really and that um there was a space for like people in radiology who are also really good at ai mm-hmm. and having like domain expertise in both fields and how that can you know really allow you to solve relevant problems in radiology so that was really mm. exciting and so from yeah, there, curious, it was sort of more of the same. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious, do you think your clinical training helped you win first place? Not really. Honestly. <laughs> <laughs> so, <Why is> that? <laughs> you know, when we won, everyone was like, oh, yeah, see, so domain expertise is really important. And like, you know, these two like people in the medical field won this competition that has to do with like pneumonia detection, chest x-rays and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But in reality, like I was like a third year med student at the time. Like I didn't really know that much about radiology and like a lot of other top competitors that year were also people with radiology experience, mm-hmm. but there are also a decent number that weren't. And Mm -hmm. like, as the years went by, like, I realized that like, you don't need that much domain expertise to train a good model for a problem. The caveat being like, the problem is already defined for you. So I guess Mm. I'm trying to say is Uh, you need the domain expertise to define like the relevant problems to solve, to collect the right data, to label it correctly. But once you've defined it, you don't need that much domain expertise to actually train a good model. You just need someone who's good at like training models. Like that could be anyone. So domain expertise is definitely important in like the context of the real world when you're trying to figure out what is actually useful, what mm-hmm. kind of model should I train, like yeah, what data should I collect, how should I label it? But once you have all of that already which is the case for pretty much all Kaggle competitions. Like the host has already defined a task. Then Mm. you just need to be good at like training models and understanding like nuances of the data, taking advantage of certain insights that you find in the data and like just being good at data science in general, as Mm. opposed to like being an expert in whatever, whatever field it is. And that doesn't apply to all competitions, like some competitions, um domain expertise does play a bigger role i think in like radiology ai competitions at least the ones i've done so far i mean i'm not even a radiology resident yet and Mm so honestly my knowledge of radiology is not super great um but i do have experience working with like radiology images which is only useful in the beginning because I can sort of hit the ground running at the beginning of a competition. But like 
a lot of these data scientists are super smart and they pick up things really quickly. So I don't even think mm. it offers that much of an advantage. Yeah, I wonder if you could walk us through the strategy you took in um, for this RSNA pneumonia challenge. Like, you know, how, you know, how did you design your model? Um, you know, what do you think like allowed you to, to get to win the competition? Yeah, so I think I'll use my um, recent success in the PE, the pulmonary embolism challenge last mm -hmm. year, because like that was a challenge where I had already done like several competitions and I sort of like sort of knew what exactly to do to put myself in a good position to do well. Yeah. And so the first thing is like understanding the task that they want you to do to predict and then what kind of data you have. So in this challenge, it was like CT, uh, CT pulmonary angiograms. And so it was a huge data set because each CT had like several hundred images. Mm -hmm. And then I was able to sort of jump ahead because I've already worked with CT images before. And I know like how to interface with like DICOM data and all that stuff. And so mm. um, it, it didn't take me too long to figure out, you know, what exactly the data set contained and like how I could leverage certain aspects of it. Like, for example, you know, you can use information in the DICOM header to sort of sort things, sort the slices in order. Mm -hmm. um, and then you can also like apply different windowing to the to the CT images. So essentially CT images have like more shades of gray than like traditional images, which go from zero to 255 for each uh, pixel. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. CT images have a wider range and you can kind of play around with this thing called the window, which basically lets you like turn that wider range into like an 8-bit image that we're used to seeing. But you oh, can wow. create kind of like different images um, that highlight different structures by using different windows for the CT images. So that's wow. something like mm -hmm. I already knew going into the competition. It wasn't something that I had to like learn or figure out for myself, which honestly mm -hmm. like took like like 30 minutes for other people to just read about and figure <laughs> out. So it wasn't even that much of an advantage. Uh -huh. mm. um, so then I already had a pipeline for experimenting or doing experiments rapidly in Kaggle competitions. It's something I had sort of worked on over the years to just make things easier whenever I start a new competition. Mm -hmm. um, because it was like a lot of data in a pretty short amount of time, like six weeks is about half yeah. the duration of a typical Kaggle competition. Sort of laid out exactly what I was going to do. And there was actually a competition for intracranial hemorrhage and head CTs the year before, which mm -hmm. I did not do super well in. But I knew that a lot of the same like techniques that were successful are going to be successful here, like sequence modeling and all that stuff. So mm -hmm. I sort of came up with a game plan and I'm like, all right, I'm just going to go for it. And this was sort of like during the beginning of my intern year where I was working like 70 hours yeah. a week. And yeah, so, how do you have time to, to compete in these? Oh my God. Yeah, and so that goes back to the point of like having a good system and pipeline to do experiments because once I have everything set up, it's mm -hmm. just waiting for my models to train. And then, you mm -hmm. know, like I can wake up in the morning, I can see the results of what I did overnight and then I can submit my next experiment based on those results. It doesn't take that much time. Oh, that's pretty cool. Um, yeah. I come back from work, I can see what's going on because I'm at work for like 10, 12 hours. And so that gives yeah. my models enough to train. And so then I come back and I'm like, okay, this is what happened from those experiments. And then I just submit some new experiments. And then, so, you know, it doesn't really take so too cool. much time if you have a good system going. Yeah. Um, and so that's something that I actually did not have in the RSNA, like pneumonia detection challenge. So I spent way more time on that challenge because like I didn't have a great system for experimenting. So there was like a lot of unnecessary effort that went into like trying to like try new things. Like mm. it basically it took a lot more effort 
to try a new experiment back then than it does now because I didn't have sort of the system or the intuition that I do now back then. Mm. Hey, that's great, man. Just like your models, I feel like you're getting iteratively better <laughs> at building these yeah, models. Yeah, I agree. You know? agree. Yeah. Wow. For sure. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the structure of your models. You know, like, do you use convolutional neural networks? Um, yeah. Yeah. So pretty much for every imaging thing, I use convolutional neural networks. Um, specifically for that challenge, I use convolutional neural networks and then also sequence models that are typically used for natural language processing. The reason being, if you can consider a CT scan as a sequence of images, right? There's like mm -hmm. a sequence of images going from top to bottom. And so you can consider that first as like a 3D volume, but 3D convolutional neural networks are really memory intensive, take a long time to train. Yeah. You have to sacrifice um, resolution. And so, you know, I wasn't super enthusiastic about using 3D convolutional neural networks. They were part of my solution, but they weren't really like the backbone of my solution. And so basically what I did was I trained 2D convolutional neural networks on each, on slices, like 2D slices from the CT mm -hmm. scan. And you can use the convolutional neural networks to essentially like turn an image into a one dimensional vector. So like mm -hmm. you have an image mm -hmm. and then you can feed it through the network and basically you get like an image barcode. So yeah, yeah. this is like a representation of the image that's much more compact, but mm -hmm. supposedly it contains all of the like relevant features that you're interested in just yeah. in, you know, a much smaller or much like more compact representation. And it's then you can use these. Yeah, exactly. And you use these compressed representations uh, to basically create a sequence. So let's say like you turn like a big image, which is 512 by 512 pixels mm -hmm. into like just five, like a 512 numbers. Like it's just wow. one row of 512. Wow. And yeah. then each slice can be like basically... Yeah, you, you basically turn it into like a row of numbers and then you feed it through like a sequence model that looks at each row that basically looks at like each vector of yeah. numbers and then turns it into your final prediction. And so this way you can kind of leverage the 2D convolutional networks where there's a lot more research being done mm -hmm. um, and a lot more like advanced uh, techniques being applied but also leverage like the the 3d nature of the data by using sequence modeling which will allow you to take neighboring slices into consideration when you're making your prediction yeah. because that definitely helps a lot in terms of performance that's awesome that's a that's such a cool like i feel like that's a really cool and uh beautiful strategy do um Wow. Do you think like are, are the people in like second and third place, like are they also like using these kinds of strategies or? Yeah, pretty much everyone in like the top 10 used that strategy. Mm. What do you think is um, kind of sets your model apart from, you know, second, third, fourth place finishers? Um, one thing I did was so part of the competition was to predict like right heart strain or essentially if the right ventricle was like equal to or greater in size than the left ventricle. Normally it shouldn't be right. Your left ventricle should be yeah. bigger. But the idea is if you have a huge PE, then that could be causing right heart strain because your heart, the right side of your heart is trying to pump blood against all this pressure because now mm. there's a blood clot there, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so the heart is like only represented on a portion of the CT scan. And so I had labeled a bunch of CT scans 
uh, with like which slices contain the heart. Trained you manually labeled it yourself. Yeah, I manually labeled it, which took like a couple hours only, so it wasn't that long. Um, But that basically allowed me to really focus in on that section of the CT scan when I was trying to predict the right ventricle-ventricle ratio. I think Mm -hmm. that probably gave me an advantage as opposed to just trying to like feed the whole thing, the whole CT scan into a model and then have it try and learn on its own. I feel like that's an example of the domain expertise helping you out right there. Would you say so? Yeah, I think so. Um, but first place didn't do that and they still beat me. So, <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what they did differently? Or? Yeah, so one thing they did was they like, so the CT scan images are typically like 512 by 512 pixels. Mm-hmm. And I just used that original size. But one of the things the first place um, person did was he actually like just made the images bigger. Oh. And that seemed to boost performance um, by a significant amount, which to me, like at first I was like, huh. Like, why would I resize the image to something larger than its original size? Because now I'm, yeah. like, interpolating values that aren't there. But right? I think it yeah. has to do with, like, the the kernel sizes of the networks and stuff. So I think that may have made it easier to find smaller clots um, mm. because it does change the scale uh, like the relative scale of the images relative to the filter in the convolutional neural network. So it, it does make sense why that would help. Mm. I'm, I'm actually looking at the uh, the leaderboard for that PE competition. I guess uh, Shu Guantro uh, or Guantro Shu was the, the winner. It was a data scientist in New York. Um, yeah. I like your, your submission name or your team name, by the way, the high D dimer. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know how many people got that, but no, I thought it was pretty clever. <laughs> oh, that was funny. Maybe only the people with domain knowledge. Yeah. Wow, I see also that you've been um, participating in, in non-medicine um, Kaggle challenges too. Like I saw you're a, a fifth place finisher in the deep fake detection challenge, which actually had a, a $1 million prize pool um, and $40,000 for fifth place. So, hey, that's... That that's a that's a lot of money that you've won from that. Yeah, it's pretty good. Um, that was a fun competition to do because I teamed up with someone who is also in the medical field. So James is a cardiologist in the UK who is doing like a PhD right now, and he is also very good at like computer vision stuff. Um, so I reached out to him like towards the end of the competition or as we were approaching the team merge deadline i was like hey like wondering if you want to team up um i'm also in medicine i think it'd be pretty cool if we did well in this competition together and he was actually already doing very well for himself um so honestly i I wasn't sure if he'd accept my request but he did and you know um I played around with a lot of experiments on my end, which honestly weren't super successful. Um, but in the end, we were still able to, to just sneak into that, you know, top five prize money finish range. So that was very fun. I feel like you guys won, or you guys got in there by a pretty good margin. You know, uh, I'm looking at like the scoreboard and, uh, you know, the winner had a score of like 0.427, but you guys had a score of 0.437. And then the sixth place had 0.44. So, I, you know, I feel like it's still like a pretty, pretty good margin, right? That you guys were in by. Yeah. So, so a few teams got like disqualified. Um, there's actually a lot of controversy over that. Mm-hmm. But we ended up benefiting from it because otherwise it would have been like seventh or eighth place. Hmm. Um, did you use the same strategy for this, for this competition? No. So here we found that 3d convolutional neural networks actually work the best. Mm -hmm. 
could you talk a bit more about your model that you used? Yeah, so we just used a lot of different like convolutional neural networks, like 3D convolutional neural networks, because the goal here was to see if a video had been altered by like a deep fake algorithm. Mm -hmm. um, it's a very, very hard task actually. And so we just used a lot of like different 3D convolutional neural networks that have been developed for use on videos. And, you know, um, there was a lot of like pre-processing involved. It was like detecting faces, it's an object detection model and all this stuff. Um, so basically you have like this video and first, you run it through a face detection algorithm to extract just the faces because mm. that's really the thing you're worried about is like the faces were altered by some deep fake algorithm. And then you put this like video of faces or like basically the, the video is of someone talking and after you've extracted the face portion, you just use that as input into convolutional neural network and make it predict like fake or not fake. Mm-hmm. Wow, I mean that sounds that sounds pretty cool. You know, I feel like it's also very important in this in this current era where we have a lot of, you know, deep fake videos coming out. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, basically what we learned from this challenge is that it's very very hard to detect deep fakes um mm -hmm. which does not bode well for the future, but I'm sure we'll come up with something. It seems almost like a game of cat and mouse. You know, because I'm sure the people developing these deep fake algorithms will develop them to be undetectable. And then now, you know, it's like, it's like almost like, yeah, like a cold war almost, you know? Yeah, that, that's exactly it. Like, the better the detection models become, the better the deep fake generation models will become. And, you know, it's just like a never ending cycle. So there needs to be like another way to, be able to like validate the authenticity of a video um but mm. you know maybe maybe nfts <laughs> yeah maybe yeah uh, i'm curious if, if you could talk more about like so did you start learning how to code in, in undergrad or in high school um you know or has it just kind of become a, did it start out as like a personal hobby or did it start with your classes it started with my classes um, and sort of like me wanting to get involved in research. I actually learned R before anything else. R is like a statistical computing language. It's not like an actual like programming language. Yeah. And I hate it because it's like not very intuitive. And I don't know, it's just like ugly to look at. I still use it sometimes for like stat stuff because it is really good for stats but python is my language of choice nowadays i think it's mm -hmm. you know pretty much the language of choice for most people who are doing deep learning these days that'll probably change you know over time and stuff but at least for now python reigns supreme um mm -hmm. so i started learning python in undergrad as well but it was it wasn't until i started doing deep learning that i like really dove into it and tried to be good at it Mm. Uh, do you think medical students should learn how to code? If they want to. I think overall, like, if you're not planning to do research that requires coding, you're not into, like, machine learning, it doesn't really help that much in terms of, like, medicine in general. Mm -hmm. Like, all depends on what you want to do. Like, if you want to code, go ahead and learn it. But... I don't think it should be like part of a curriculum or anything um, because I think it's still pretty niche when you think of medicine as a whole. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think there should be more of an emphasis on like statistics and clinical reasoning and stuff like that. And like, mm -hmm. you know, thinking through things like pretest probability and test characteristics and things like that when you're mm -hmm. deciding how to work up a patient because I don't know. I think like right now, there's a lot of emphasis on knowledge 
and yeah. not so much on like how to leverage your knowledge to efficiently work up a patient. What I mean by that is like you order, you don't order unnecessary tests. Um, you think critically about what is the most likely diagnosis in this patient as opposed to just having like a huge differential and mm-hmm. like not really understanding how to parse through it right like mm. I don't know like I, I felt like there was a period of time in med school where it was like they just wanted me to have like a broad differential as opposed to like learning how to prioritize which diagnoses on my differential were highest and like how mm. to work it up appropriately so mm-hmm. I don't know. I think there should be more of a focus on that. And that sort of ties into like statistical reasoning, um, probabilistic reasoning. And so there are definitely ways to like not make it so technical because I think that would turn off a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But I'll get off my soapbox now. Anyways, I think there should just be like, <laughs> I think that's a great soapbox. As opposed yeah. to just like knowing stuff, you know? Trust me, as a medical student who is preparing for step one, actually the last scored step one, <laughs> uh, I'm the last cohort of students which will be taking it scored. Mine's is in two months, but I, I do agree where it's, I don't oh, know, man. it seems like this emphasis on knowledge seems a little um, outdated. And uh, yeah, because yeah. I, I just look every, if I don't know it, I just look it up. Right? Uh, like things have changed. <laughs> like there's up to date, there's like all these resources on the internet now. And so you can't be expected to know everything. What you need mm-hmm. to do is know how to ask the right questions as mm-hmm. opposed to just like no information. Yeah. Um, related to that, I'm curious, you know, what do you think is the future of AI in medicine or what's it going to look like in 10 to 20 years? That's an excellent question. So, you know, it's been like five years since there was all this type around radiology and the AI. And honestly, not much has changed. And mm-hmm. so there are all these like FDA approved algorithms and some practices are using it, but like, how is it really affecting the overall radiology workflow? Uh, kind of minimally, I mm. would say. Mm-hmm. So I'm not super optimistic about the next like five or 10 years, especially because medicine takes forever to change. Oh, yeah. um, but, you know, I could be surprised. And another thing is just like, you know, how do these algorithms like fit into the workflow? Yeah. Like, yeah, I don't think we've like thought super hard about that just because I have a model that can like predict one thing in a, in a CT or one thing in a chest x-ray. Like that's not like what you want from a radiology report. Really. There are instances where you're like, I want to know if there's a PE. I want to know if there's bleed. I want to know if there's blah, blah, blah. But a lot of times you're like, there's this symptom that I'm not sure what it's from, but I think that imaging could be helpful. So I'm going to order a CT scan. And it's like, you're kind of just looking for like the whole picture when you're reading the report. So, I mean, it's like, yeah, you have pretest probabilities for certain conditions. Um, So to rephrase, I think, the algorithms that are most useful now are models that like predict can predict diagnoses where like your pretest probability for something is like high or low so basically mm-hmm. like i don't think there's a pe but i need to rule it out yeah. so i get a ctte there's no pm bed or you know, I'm very concerned that there's like intracranial hemorrhage. I order a head CT to see if there is. As opposed to like, this guy has belly pain and, you know, I'm not really sure what's causing it. Like mm-hmm. in that case, like, it's not super useful to have an algorithm that's like, there's no appendicitis here. It's like, okay, great. What about all the other things that can cause abdominal uh, I see what you mean. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think there are like certain things and and companies know this already that's why they're focusing on things like this especially like things that can be used in a triage setting in a busy ed to like prioritize studies Mm -hmm. that may have high likelihood of having an important finding yeah i think those are starting to be used more but i think overall like 
we just need to think more critically about what we want a model to predict and you know create models that are going to be useful for that but then also like i don't know like if a model says there's this finding and i don't see it like now oh, i'm spending happens. more time trying to make sure i don't see it and that yeah. i'm not like being so i don't know it it's hard to see how like AI in its current form is going to be super helpful for a lot of radiology cases where there's a lot of uncertainty, but I could be surprised. And I think, you know, we need to focus also less on like diagnostics and more on just things that are like really menial that no one wants mm. to do. Like, I don't want to measure a lymph node. I have <laughs> to like drag my mouse, like, X centimeters across the lymph node and measure it like the sagittal and trans. You know, it's very annoying to do these things. Mm. So it'd be nice if a model could just automatically measure stuff for me, like lung nodules and all this stuff, or like how we can use models to extract information from images that could be useful for predicting certain things that we can't really extract on our own. Like mm, there's yeah. some models yeah. that are doing like visceral fat quantification and things like that or like segmenting yeah. out like aortic calcifications and then using these to estimate cardiovascular risk in like five years and i think that's really really cool and so mm. i think we just have to be more creative and in how we're using deep learning to solve problems in radiology you know it's yeah. easy to just predict a binary one or zero for some random diagnosis. You can write a paper and you can publish it. You can add to your CV. But mm -hmm. how useful is it going to be? I don't really know. Yeah. And I think there's like this huge space like for radio or for deep learning to be helpful beyond radiology. Like right now, like, I don't know, my EMR is garbage and <laughs> it takes me so long to search <laughs> for information. Yeah, And like, it'd be, and like, you're reading through all those, like so much of what I'm doing right now, like if I had like a really good NLP model that could parse this data and give me a summary and like locate like data that I'm looking for instead of me, you know, trying to do it in some convoluted way, it'd be super helpful. And so I'm really looking forward to the future of AI for like non-radiology in medicine because that's, I think that's going to have like a way bigger impact. I feel like that, that almost sounds like a holy grail of, you know, medicine plus EM, an EMR assistant, you know, that could kind of uh, know what you're looking for and help you find it. Yeah, for sure. And I think there was like this Google health um, thing recently. I forgot what it was called, but essentially like they were demoing, like they basically like, applied their expertise in search to like the EMR, which mm -hmm. is like super cool. At least the demo was super cool. But like yeah. big tech companies have tried to break into like EMR for a while and have failed. Mm -hmm. So including Google. So and you know, IBM I'm optimistic, too, right? but I don't know. Yeah, IBM, yeah. Microsoft, like I don't know, mm. you know, hopefully one day. Yeah, the analogy I like to use is kind of like a Jarvis, uh, but instead of for Iron Man, it's for doctors. Yes. Yeah. That'd be awesome. Um, yeah. I don't know, you know, the current generation of AI is really just a giant mess of linear algebra that I show some data into and then run some optimization and then like get some numbers out. That's um, funny. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's true. <laughs> so still pretty far off from Jarvis, but one day, one day. Hey, you know, you got a long career ahead of you. Um, and you're a rising star in the field that, you know, I, I'm also curious too, what, uh, you know, what's, what's next for you? Like right now you're, uh, you're going to be a radiology resident in a few months. Um, what do you envision your career looking like? You know, are you going to go into academic medicine, like industry, clinical, you know, what, what do you, what's on the horizon for you? Yeah. So yeah, I'm, I think I'm going to do academic medicine. I'm not really much of like a business, like industry kind of guy. Obviously that could change. I like teaching a lot. I like sort of the freedom that comes with academics. Um, and 
you know, I, I like going to the conferences and presenting my work there. I hate writing papers because it takes so much time. And like, I have to look up all these citations so that they don't say I didn't cite enough papers in my paper. But anyways, that's beside the point. Um, but yeah, I think I'm probably going to do academics and I want to continue like being good at building models. Um, and it's, it's hard to keep up with all of the new stuff that comes out, but I want to keep doing Kaggle competitions. Um, you know, I'd really like to transition more into like focusing on education, like data science and AI education. Um, cause to be honest, you see a lot of like, not great AI work that gets published. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, yeah. I think a lot of that is just what, you know, it's, it's become really accessible now, which is great. But now you have people who aren't taking the time to really like build their foundation and they're just like training a model and then like calculating the AUC and then writing a paper and publishing it. And mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think a lot of that has to do with like not enough education. And so, you know, uh, working with like the various like societies like RSNA and Society for Emerging Informatics and Medicine or STEM, um, just to try and, you know, provide good resources to people who want to get started, help them build a good foundation so they can do good work. Because I think everyone wants to do good work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think there's not really a, um, like a standard, like good practices of, of AI for, you know, uh, our previous guest, Dr. Anouk Stein, like one of her things was she's really passionate about like external data validation and how important that is and how it's not really uh, addressed or, you know, like even like a lot of journals, like they don't really check for external validation when you subscribe, uh, when you sub submit a manuscript. Yeah, for sure. And I think that that's what matters the most um, is how well it works in on data sets that are independent of the data set that you've trained the model on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so a lot of work doesn't include that. A lot of times it's because of all the data privacy issues and mm -hmm. like sort of this unwillingness to share data, which I think the societies are trying to break through. Like all mm -hmm. of these RSNA challenges, they get data contributed by all these like different hospitals and people which is fantastic. I'm all about this like open data um, stuff because it really makes like this kind of work more accessible to people. Also because I hate collecting data and I don't have that much data that I can draw from on my own. So I kind of rely on that. Yeah. Um, but I, I think like, you know, like, like if I collect my own data set, and I like train a model on it and then I don't release the model. I don't release the code. I don't release the data set. Like, what am I even doing? Right? That's true. Like, yeah. I just published a paper and then like, first of all, who knows like if I split my data correctly, like so who knows if there's like a data leak and that's why my accuracy or my performance is so good. Like there's so many things that can go wrong and we just sort of take things at face value mm. um, that I think like, Sharing of code, sharing of data is just like really important. Um, and so yeah. I'm glad that a lot of the academic societies are also taking this position. That's like saying, you know, like a tree has fallen in my forest, but I'm not going to show you where the tree is. Yeah, exactly. And then it's like, okay, then I don't care, right? Right. Yeah. You don't. <laughs> then I don't care about, I'm just going to leave and I'm going to go find another forest. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. What, um, you know, I think you briefly talked about one soapbox you had earlier, which is that uh, the importance of, you know, like clinical decision making. Uh, I was wondering, do you have any other soapboxes, you know, AI and medicine soapboxes? Uh, let's see. Yeah, first, put your code on GitHub, like just do it. And <laughs> mm -hmm. that way we can actually look at it and we can have something other than a piece of paper that says I trained a model on the AUC point nine. Um, <laughs> yeah. What else is there? Um, if your data set is small, don't just do a standard train validation and test split. 
then your mm. performance is being reported like on 100 or 200 cases and like that's not enough for me to like really get a sense of how well the model is working because the confidence interval is probably pretty large like at least do like a good cross-validation scheme or like do multiple train test splits and like get the average performance like be smart about it um because you know then you can technically just like split the data a number of times and then maybe you'll get lucky and one of them will be really good and then you can just publish that and not tell anyone mm, what you did mm, before mm, yeah um and let's see what else is there um don't use tensorflow I'm oh really saying. tensorflow is fine <laughs> I, I prefer pytorch tensorflow is, TensorFlow is great i just don't like using it because it's, it's not as user-friendly for me at least um and those are all my main ones um you know like release your model yeah yeah unless you're trying to make a profit off of it fine then i get it you're trying to protect your ip even though you use some off-the-shelf algorithm that someone else developed and then Anyways, I'm curious, um, have you, do you release your code on GitHub? Yes. So I always try to release my code. If I don't, it's because I'm lazy and not because I'm unwilling. But for mm -hmm. all the Kaggle competitions where I participated in, it's like a requirement, first of all. And um, I, I think it's just, you know, it's a good way to foster like open science and collaboration. And so I'm really for it. And I apologize for all the times that I've been too lazy to upload my code. <laughs> I'm sure the community will accept your apology. <laughs> <laughs> or if anything, this, you know, this podcast episode would be, uh, would be evidence of your apology. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, and uh, final, one of our last questions is, um, what advice would you give to medical students interested in this space of, of medicine and AI? Mm, so there's so many resources out there uh, to learn. You can literally just like Google like intro to machine learning and then get started from there. You don't really need to have a super technical background either. Um, you should know math, like mm. algebra. You don't even necessarily need to know linear algebra in full depth, just like matrix multiplications and stuff. And you can get like started pretty quickly. If you want to learn how to code, there are so many resources out there. I would recommend learning Python. It's easy, mm -hmm. it's readable, and there's a huge community out there to learn from. You know, it's free. Um, and then if you're interested particularly in deep learning, computer vision, Stanford has, you know, a great course. It's called CS231N. The mm -hmm. videos are online. The notes are online. There, you can kind of ignore the super mathematical parts of it, which honestly there isn't much of. But, you know, it's great just for getting a sense of, like, how neural networks work, how deep learning works. And so I think there's just so much out there on the Internet um that people can access nowadays like if you have the enthusiasm and the interest and most importantly the time um mm -hmm. you can definitely get started with very little mm. that's great advice and i think but our it's listeners... like learning a language mm -hmm. you just have to you know put effort into it and if you don't use it you're gonna forget it mm. yeah yeah, I actually uh, I, I did Andrew Ng's machine learning Coursera and uh, it was fun, but and it was, you know, I felt very rewarding, but I, I haven't really done anything since completing it. And I feel like, I don't know, now it's like, yeah, like I, I did it, but then I don't code anymore. And I, I almost I, yeah, I feel that way where it's like, I feel like I've forgotten everything that I've learned. <laughs> I got to do more. things. Yeah, 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 yeah. It comes back once you get back into it, but it is something that you need to you know, continue to work at or else it can go away pretty easily. Like I took French in high school and my first years of college and I haven't used it since then. And 
I don't really know that much French anymore. Mm. Same thing for like machine learning, Python, et cetera. Yeah. I guess uh, that which we practice grows stronger. Yeah, for sure. Oh, man. Well, Ian, thank you so much for this interview. It was really great learning about your journey, um, you know, how your successes in Kaggle. Um, and, you know, I really wish you the best moving forward in your career. I I'm really excited to see, uh, I, you know, I feel like you're going to be a very much involved in the, f the future frontier of medicine and AI. And, you know, um, thank you so much for this interview. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure.